0: This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this land.
1: The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia?
0: 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host for today, Dr. Elizabeth Kramer from the University of New South Wales. Indonesia has the largest population of Muslims in the world, but it is not an Islamic state. The place of Islam within the state has been contested over the years, with proponents for and against a larger role for Islam in the government and in the lives of citizens. The groups who advocate for a more prominent role for Islam in the state occupy a wide spectrum of ideologies, approaches, and tactics. In the post suharto era, terrorist acts have drawn attention, with a handful of small but committed jihadist organizations mounting bombings at various sites, including churches, hotels, and perhaps most famously, Balinese bars. My guest today has spent over a decade researching extremist groups in Indonesia, Dr. Julie Chernoff Huang is an Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science and International Relations at Goucher College in Maryland. She's especially interested in how social networks facilitate entry into and exit from jihadist groups in Southeast Asia. She's the author of a number of books, including Why Terrorists Quit, published by Cornell University in 2018, and the subject of a previous Talking Indonesia podcast. Her most recent book that we'll be talking about today is Becoming Jihadis, Radicalization and Commitment in Southeast Asia, published by Oxford University Press. And with that, hi, Julie, congratulations on your new book and welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Elizabeth. It's wonderful to be here.
0: So I want to start with how you became interested in researching Indonesia and in particular extremist groups and terrorists. It's a really sensitive topic, and one that feels like it would be very difficult and stressful to delve into at times. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic?
1: I actually got in. I got involved in researching Indonesia actually because I studied abroad in Indonesia in 1998, and I was in Indonesia in Malang and subsequently after we were evacuated in bali and i went home a week before suharto fell so i was there when the protests were starting when movements were were mushrooming up and people were starting to be brave and i ended up doing this project where i was trying to covertly ask people what they thought would happen next from that, it, it was, I just got bit by the bug. How I got interested in exploring Islamist extremist groups is I was doing my first book, I was doing my dissertation book, and uh, that was called Peaceful Islamist Mobilization in the Muslim World What Went Right. I was actually dragged kicking and screaming because one of the uh, friends I made was an academic named Badri Soleil. And he kept pushing me. He said, Julie, if if you're going to understand peace, you have to understand violence. And so he pushed me to meet with people who were on the fringes of the militant movements. At that time, I, I was quite scared. But over time, I started to get more interested into this concept of disengagement and the idea that a person could become a member of an extremist group participate in acts of terrorism, and then disengage from violence and rejoin society. I wanted to know more about that. So around 2009, I started entertaining the idea. And in 2010, I started to do research on that.
0: Wow, that's, that's quite a story. And being in Indonesia in 1998 as a foreigner, I presume that was your first time in Indonesia yes. yeah yes. that that would have been quite the baptism by fire. I can imagine well, I'm interested in i mean you you've given a little bit of a background about why you've chosen to look at this particular group and you've put it really nicely in saying that in order to understand peace, you need to understand violence. I guess the layperson does associate these groups with violence, but in your book, you're very explicit that there's a wide spectrum of people who are involved in these jihadist movements. But can you just give us a quick overview of what you mean by extremist groups and what this particular landscape looks like in Indonesia?
1: That's such a good question. When I talk about extremist groups in Indonesia, I'm talking specifically about the Salafi jihadi groups and the Takfiri groups. And Salafi jihadi groups, they take the purity and the literalism of Salafi Islam and they combine that with the point from Abdullah Azam and subsequent scholars that jihad is an individual obligation incumbent on all able bodied Muslims, and that jihad kitah is that obligation, jihad as battle, not the greater jihad, which is, of course, the struggle to purge oneself from sin. That Of course, that is incumbent on every able-bodied Muslim, but this was this idea, this departure from the tradition that jihad was a collective obligation. It was the flip. It was that it was incumbent on every individual able-bodied Muslim, and Azam said children did not need to ask their parents. Debtors did not need to ask their creditors. If you were an able-bodied Muslim, presumably male, you could go. And it wasn't a duty, it was an obligation. So Salafi Jihadi smushes those two together. Takfiri is excommunication. It is committing takfir. It is calling Muslims kafir and excommunicating them, thus saying, if I kill you, you're not a Muslim, um, the sin will not be on me. And most, Islamists, most Salafi Jihadi groups back away from, from takfir. They see it as a step too far. And as it's been explained to me by s- several of the people I've interviewed, what if we're wrong? You don't know the internal life of somebody who may work in an organi- in an office, somebody, a janitor who works for the government. That may be the only job he can get. He yeah. may be the most devout Muslim on the planet. And you have to consider those things. You, you don't want to commit takfir against institutions. You don't want to talk fear against individuals, you don't want to do it indiscriminately. And there are discourses about that in the Salafi jihadi community, but largely your groups that hesitate to use acts of terrorism. But in Indonesia, you have a highly fragmented Islamist extremist ecosystem. And I love to think of it as an ecosystem because it is this interlocking web of groups with the Salafi jihadi groups and the Takfiri groups. And you have some groups between 2004 and 2009, Al-Qaeda and the Malay archipelago, whose raison d'etre was to carry out terrorist attacks. But you also have other groups like Jamaz Lamia, Mujaheddin Kompak, Ring Banten, M. E. uh Tanuruntu, that carried out terrorist attacks at one point in their history, but prioritize uh dakwah islamic propagation tarbia islamic education the case especially of ji um, and paramilitary training and then you had some groups like jaitay that held extreme views and ran paramilitary training but did not carry out acts of terrorism and so i like the word extremist because it encompasses the ideological and the methodological the cognitive and the whereas terrorist group is just the methodological. It's just the behavioral. And Indonesia, the story is, it's too wide and it's too broad.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that is a motif that comes up in a lot of studies in Indonesia, isn't it? The vast diversity of all of the islands and cultural groups. No surprise that we also see that in extremist ecosystem as well. And I love that idea of the ecosystem that you've just raised. Thank you. And, one of the great things about
1: studying Indonesia, and you know this as well, is that Indonesia has one of the most, if not the most, widespread, huge Muslim civil societies. You have progressive Islamic groups. You have the Oramas, you have en you have Muhammadiyah, with a membership out of one out of every three Indonesian Muslims. And you have groups, host of groups on the conservative of the spectrum. You have a host of groups in that kind of paramilitary militia end of the spectrum. There's so many different groups. And so, of course, you're going to have multiple groups at Salafi Jihadi and Takfiri end of the spectrum. And because of that, it offers this unique opportunity that's really unparalleled anywhere else in the Muslim world. To say, okay, why do people join these groups? Well, if they can sample and go from this group to this group and this group, they can move around and the cost of of exit and moving between groups is low. They're not going to be hurt. They're not going to lose their family members. They're not going to be estranged from their children. They're not going to be forcibly divorced from their wife unless they're joining a Tukferi group. But within the Salafi jihadis, because you can move around so much and the cost of exit and movement and migration is low, you can hold ideology constant. And you can say, well, if all these groups want the same thing, and if all these groups have a lot of the same methods, why choose this one and not that one? And that's unique for Indonesia. And that offers this unparalleled opportunity.
0: That's so beautifully put, Julie. And it really shows in your work too that, I mean, coming back to this idea of the ecosystem, within an ecosystem, you have things entering and leaving constantly. So your study is, your two studies mentioned earlier, kind of look at those two dynamics, right? People leaving the ecosystem and people coming into the ecosystem. So, Your previous book looked at why terrorists quit, and we might call that the exit pathways for people in this world. And your new book looks at the flip side of that, um, what are the entry pathways? So what inspired you to write this particular book and how does it complement your previous work?
1: I kind of wrote the prequel. (laughs) Um, Some of the same characters appear, but a wider array of characters When I finished Why Terrorists Quit, I realized I had a lot of loose data about joining. I thought about, well, what do I want to do with this? How do I want to use this? And initially, um, so I applied for a grant from the Smith Richardson Foundation, and they funded the research, and it was the first time I'd ever had funded research, because I wrote Why Terrorists Quit on a shoestring budget with summer research funds
0: from my university. Well, congratulations on getting funding. That's always,
1: <laughs> always a and big then, plus
0: in academia.
1: And I thought, okay, I'm going to do Indonesia, Malaysia, and I could not get a visa for Malaysia. One of my guides, uh, Nurhuda Ismail, says, "Oh, Julie, if only you were working on the Philippines." Then I could I could get you in in a heartbeat, and I said, "Well, I be safe," and he said, "Absolutely," and I know exactly how to do this. And so I wrote to the Smith Richardson Foundation. I said, "Well, can I swap this? I'm getting shoved in a drawer. This is not happening um, for Malaysia. Can I do this?" So then Nerhuda and I went to the Philippines, and I started doing research in Philippines. What I kept finding was when I started looking at motivations and kind of riddled that out and found pathways and riddled that out. Then I started to think, what comes next? Commitment. You'll see in the book, I base, theoretically, I build on Hundeed's work on the committed insider. So I started thinking about that and then i go back for another trip. We'll meet with the same people. Well, how do you show commitment? Talk to J.I. people. What are you looking for? as indicators of commitment, talking to people who were new in a group. How do you show commitment? Um, And that was a really interesting conversations because they were much more measurable, but also in some ways ideological ephemeral. Then I got to the chapter on activism, which was the next question. Why do people participate in terrorist attacks? and then the realization the most don't so then what do they do what makes it that somebody gets a jihad experience somebody gets the opportunity to go to a training camp somebody gets recruited into a terrorist attack somebody gets charged with weapons tasked with weapons training and other people are just administrators or they do dakwa and that's what they do and they're valued for it but that's the sum total of what they do and so The idea of it was loose, um, and I I had the idea of those being the chapters at the outset, but it was kind of drawing up the pathway. How can I get the pathway to the point at which someone would disengage? How can I go, well, from the beginning to being a member, committing, doing acts, and then stopping short of disengaging?
0: Your explanation that you just gave, it for our listeners it would be really good to get a sense of what your argument is in those chapters from your research what what is it or, or what kind of factors play into why somebody would join one of these groups and and why they might end up committing acts of violence rather than being an administrator what is it that guides people in a particular direction once they enter that world
1: well as i indicated earlier indonesia It has this huge array of Islamic civil society groups and Islamist civil society groups. And even on the Salafi Jihadi end, you have multiple groups um, and a person can move between them. And it's low exit barriers. They're not going to lose their families. And so... There's a certain freedom to to move among these groups. So why does somebody choose this group and not that group? What I found is what makes a person join, what makes a person stay, is the social ties they make with the members in the group. The bonds of community, connection, brotherhood, based on trust, respect. Affinity, and in some cases, even love. The book identifies five and a half pathways via which an individual will join one of these groups. And these are kinship, so family members. These are typically, uh, these may be parents, siblings, uncles, then. Schools, this was a very Indonesia-specific one, Um, and these were the J.I. schools, but also not the tens of thousands of Islamic boarding schools, but the specific radical schools. I think all told were, we might be talking about seventy schools, and the bonds you make with your fellow members in those schools, and then one is recruited out of those schools. And those two or what I call internal pathways, you are already engaged with the group. If you are born into the group, if you have siblings in the group, if you have relatives in the group, you have this shortcut to entry. If you are at an Islamic boarding school that belongs to one of these groups, you are being socialized into the ideology socialized and indoctrinated into the ways of thinking ways of being norms of being so you also you may not have a shortcut to entry because you're in school there but you are brought inside to the internal ways of being and then we have the other three pathways and the central free space in these pathways are the study circle the study circle is the key locus of the external pathways. This is where outsiders come in. You can have a study circle at a mosque. You can have study circles on university campuses. You can have study circles in high school. They are ubiquitous everywhere. Christians have study circles. Progressive Muslims have study circles and radical Islamist groups have study circles. My other pathway, so study circles, conflict, prison, three external pathways and one partial pathway which is social media. Now this is a way that Malaysia is different from Indonesia and the Philippines. In Indonesia and the Philippines, social media played a smaller role. You didn't have people wholly radicalized by social media. The way you did in Malaysia because if you go to a public event, it is more than likely special branch will find out and they will arrest you. But in Indonesia and the Philippines Social media often played a supporting role. It could be what got you interested, and then someone would invite you to an event where they could meet you, vet you, assess you, or it could be you were at a public event and then you were invited to a private chat. They were also tools to learn about bomb making or credit card fraud or to get more ideological, under, greater ideological understanding. Um, they were a way for women to participate. But in each of these, kinship, schools, study circles, conflict, prison, social media, there is a social component where you come to interact with the act- activists, you build bonds, you get indoctrinated, And you increase trust with your fellow members. A key finding that I have is that ideology is not the driver of the story. Social bonds are the driver of the story. Ideology is the binding agent, it's why people feel united. It's why people feel that sense of brotherhood because they're united in a common goal. But the driver at every stage joining, commitment, participation
0: is social. I think that's, this is a really good segue into one of my next questions, which is about motivations and why uh, you've talked about the pathways for joining, but what are the actual motivations that we see within individuals for becoming a part of this, these groups, particularly if they are outsiders from the beginning?
1: Joining is a combination of two factors, who you know and what you seek. So who we know, that could be family, that could be a friend, that could be a teacher. What would they seek? That could be uh, altruism, wanting to make life better for Muslims. That could be revenge, redemption. It could be wanting to learn about Islam and learn about jihad in a practical way and I want to take a, a moment and explain that. So in the Philippines, several of the young men that I interviewed joined because they were members of the Maute family and they wanted to learn more about Islam. They wanted to learn to read the Quran. They were kids. They were tweens. But in Indonesia, no one joins an Islamist extremist group because they want to learn to read the Quran. In Indonesia, they wanted the practical experience and the practical knowledge of jihad to learn about jihad in a practical way not just a theoretical way so who they, they knew somebody already in the group and they had the desire to learn about jihad in a practical way they knew somebody already in the group and they wanted to improve muslim lives they knew somebody already in the group and they wanted revenge or they wanted redemption for perhaps a life of too much sin, or they were in a multidimensional crisis. They knew somebody already in the group. And and this was a way to get more money to their families than they could get in a month. And so when you drill down, a lot of those people were going through multidimensional crises too. So it goes back on redemption.
0: It's so interesting hearing you talk about all of these different pathways, because obviously to to come to these conclusions you had to interview individuals and I think that's one of the most impressive aspects of the book that you managed to conduct so many interviews with people who are in this world. Um, 97 jihadists in Indonesia I think and uh, 20 25 in the Philippines which is amazing Can you talk a little bit about how you went about this? I can imagine that there's a lot of ethical questions and sensitivities uh, related to talking to to these particular people in this demographic. So, yeah, just interested in how you approach that for your research.
1: Well, that's also a really good question. In the United States, uh, we have something a little different than the Australian ethics protocols. We have IRB, Institutional Review Board. And one thing that I did shortly after coming to Goucher college is I got on our, our IRB committee. And IRB is chiefly interested, they're interested in you doing ethical research that safeguards people's identities, that m- makes sure that they do not feel forced or coerced into doing an interview. Um, and that minimizes risk. I haven't been on the committee for about five years. But one thing that I've learned is that you need to, first of all, explain the Indonesian context. And Indonesia is different than America. What things we assume in the U.S. are not going to be the same. For example, I'm going to meet somebody over a meal. We are going to, or I'm going to meet somebody for coffee. That is the cultural norm. Okay. Okay. So I'm not going to meet somebody in an office. That's not how it's done. What I do, um, and because I've worked so long with IRB, is we've devised certain protocols that work for me and also really work to minimize risk, emphasizing the explaining the nature of the research, stressing that it's strictly voluntary, anonymizing people by stripping out their names by using general titles by using um or aliases or pseudonyms specifically for this research if somebody is uncomfortable we can stop we do stop if someone wants to skip a question we can skip the question if they don't want to be recorded they will not be recorded there was an interview i was doing very recently where the person seemed visibly distressed. And so my guide and I said, you know, we think we should stop, clearly are uncomfortable. And it turned out the person just wanted to vent. They wanted to vent about their prior experiences. They wanted to make us aware. And they did want to talk to us. And they were very happy that we'd listened to them then. I have walked out of interviews if I felt that protocols were not being followed if let's say we go into a prison and the prison guards won't leave the interviewing space or the prison authority won't leave the interviewing space, then we leave. Um, it's far more important to safeguard somebody's rights than to get an interview.
0: Yeah, and I suppose the fact that you've had all of those years of experience in Indonesia help you to identify those, you know, not necessarily um, vocalized cues that somebody is feeling a little bit uncomfortable so that your experience brings a lot of wealth to that as well um we're actually running out of time so i want to skip forward to my last question which is basically what's next for you
1: um i have three the first is um i want to expand out simply from indonesia um And look at this question of how terror cells are constructed um, using social network analysis to examine um, eight terror cells from Jamaz Lamia, eight from Al-Qaeda, eight from ISIS, and looking at the construction of those terror cells uh, and the social relationships at the root of that, because to go to um, one of the findings of the book, I found that the key factor in recruitment to a tariff cell was being trusted. And you were trusted because of your social ties. But I I want to see, does that hold? Can we measure that quantitatively? So I'm currently building the JI portion of that database. Um, The second looks at the Indonesian experience in training camps in Syria, Afghanistan, the Philippines, and domestically. And that is uh, work I'm doing with Kirsten Schultz um, The third is a project that I hope to get underway in the next in the next year or two, and that compares disengagement trajectories among Indonesian jihadis, white supremacists, and then comparing that to separation from the u s military and looking for parallels in what successful disengagement and reintegration look like and what we can learn with regard to best practices and that would be done with a scholar or two who work on white supremacists because i don't
0: it sounds like you have a very full plate at the moment julie (laughs) i want to just say again congratulations on your new book I did read it for this podcast and it was fascinating. Not my area at all, but very clearly written. And I encourage all of the listeners to to pick up a copy or to to get get it out of the library because it really is a fascinating read. And thank you so much for making time to come on this podcast. I really appreciate it, especially with the time difference between Australia and the US. Um, So again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Talking Indonesia podcast this episode. Thank you very much for joining us.